ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. This is the Victorian Country Hour on ABC Radio Victoria. G'day, Angus Furley here in the Country Hour chair for one more day before Warwick Long is back with you next week. Today on the show, disaffected VFF members could find out on Wednesday whether they can proceed with a vote on kicking out President Emma Germano. You'll hear today from Emma Germano. You'll also hear from a long-time CFA volunteer who says the organisation is not prepared nor resourced to tackle the current fire season. And the federal government has announced it will review the working holiday visa program. So what could that mean for farmers who rely on backpackers? Get in touch on the text line 0467 842 722. First up, let's head to Rural News and today that's brought to you by Annie Brown. Good afternoon, Angus. Making rural news today. Livestock numbers increased at the sale yards this week as vendors hope to snag a higher price following a lift in the market. However, the rush to get better prices before the end of the year resulted in another price drop. The lamb market at Wagga Wagga yesterday saw the highest drop of $20 to $40 cheaper across the board. However, AWN Wimmera manager Wayne Driscoll says the outlook for 2014 remains positive. So I think we've, um, we're over those disastrous prices we've seen earlier on in the, in the spring and um, we look to be heading into really good territory going forward. Um, you know, I think the, the kill of uh, the young light lambs uh, comparison to the, the putting them out of store lambs has been a, a big thing. So we're going to be a bit light on lambs for the, for the whole year, I think. So we could be in for some pretty good times there and sheep as well. It's an iconic industry of northern Australia that contributes more than $100 million to the economy. But recently, crocodile farming has come under the microscope with the federal government reviewing the industry's code of practice. AgriFutures held a webinar this week to talk about the industry's future research and development. And Sally Eisberg is a Darwin-based consultant for the Northern Territory's croc farming industry, and she says they welcome the review. The primary market uh, is the high-end fashion houses of Europe um, to produce luxury handbags and shoes and such. And I think based on the last statistics, Australia is producing 8% of, uh, of the world crocodilian skins. Uh, the fact that we have a code of practice for the crocodile industry, which is actually currently in the process of being reviewed, is considered a major strength as it shows our commitment to improving crocodile welfare. A Pilbara Shire has flagged an official warning to drivers in the wake of a sharp increase in cattle collisions. Shire rangers have responded to at least one collision a week in between Capricorn and Coomarina roadhouses on the Great Northern Highway over the past month. In the preceding 11 months, rangers responded to just one incident. Shire of East Pilbara ranger Chris Scanlon is urging drivers to be more careful on the roads. So in the last four weeks, team have attended multiple, or actually possibly one a week, uh, incidents for a, a vehicle versus cow 
or vehicle versus cattle. I've only had to euthanize one cow. So yes, one a week over the last four weeks is significant. But we had our last one was just on Sunday morning at, at uh, quarter to five in the morning. And so after that, I sort of felt compelled to put out a, a bit of a community warning just to advise people, hey, this is happening. Um, just be extra vigilant. We're in this December. People are sort of, it's been a long year. People are driving home. So just be aware these, um, this risk is out there and, and do what you can to mitigate. Let's stay in WA because it's been a rough ride for the nickel market this week. Prices have fallen following WA miner IGO calling it quits on its Cosmos project and Panoramic, which is based in the traditional nickel mining region of the goldfields, has also collapsed. Mining industry commentator Tim Treadgood says there may be more pain to come for the sector. The problem is pretty basic. There is a glut of nickel in the world market and it's coming from Indonesia uh, where basically low-grade ore, which has never been regarded as commercial, has been turned commercial by some smart Chinese technology. So a particular company called Xingshan has come up with a smart way of extracting nickel from low-grade ore. Uh, It has... uh, created an industry from nowhere which is filling the world market with nickel. So more nickel, lower price, and Australian producers are always at the wrong end of the cost curve and they're now paying a hefty price. These days, it's estimated current school graduates can expect to have 17 jobs across five to seven careers. That's a lot of change, which makes this last story, Angus, even more remarkable. Graham Chippy Bola has been a Kuma livestock agent for 50 years, a career that spanned droughts, commodity downturns, through to record prices and buoyant markets. He's decided this week will be his last as an agent selling sheep at the Kuma sale yard. He said things were a bit different when he started back in 1973. Yeah, like it just seems to have gone in a bit of a blur, but um, I remember starting up at the top yards up here when I was only 18 with uh, Pitsun and Montague, Frank Montague was a great boss. And um, back them days, I mean, cattle just had tail tags and I don't think there was an NVD back them days. <laughs> but yeah, over the years, just the technology's certainly been the biggest change, I think. But um, but generally, you know, the stock have all improved over the years with breeding, but, um, but you know, it's, it's a, it is a good breeding area and people get a good result, they've got the right product. 50 years, not a bad effort, hey. And Angus, that's what's making rural news. Thanks, Annie. Annie Brown there with Rural News. One of those things, isn't it? Different occupations seem to keep people around for longer and certainly stock agents, quite a few uh, sticking it out for a lot longer than you might find in other occupations. If you'd like to get in touch with me, you can on the text line. That's 0467 842 722. The Victorian Country Hour on ABC Radio Victoria. Let's get an update on what's happening at the Victorian Farmers Federation now because disaffected VFF members could find out next Wednesday whether a vote can be held to remove the organisation's president, Emma Germano, and vice president, Danielle Cucinotta. Members including former Grains Group presidents Andrew Wiedemann, Brett Hosking and Ashley Fraser have been trying for months to bring the vote about, but it's been tied up in the federal court. I spoke earlier with Emma Germano about the court action, along with a range of other big issues affecting agriculture. 
Uh, we're waiting for a judgment to come through um, on Wednesday, which uh, there was a lot of speculation that it might actually not be until about February of next year. But on Wednesday, we'll find out what the judge thinks about the case. It's been drawn out for months now, hasn't it? Yeah, oh, I mean, the the judgment, I suppose, has taken, I think, two months or maybe a little bit longer. But I, it certainly felt like this whole thing has been drawn out since about March this year when the calls were coming in from that group of members. So it's felt like 2023 has been somewhat dedicated to this uh, notion of an AGM and how do you do democracy um, at the VFF. And the judge is essentially deciding whether those those disaffected members are able to to, to call a vote where members would be asked whether they want to or don't want to boot out you and your vice president? I guess the way the case um, ended up unfolding was that there were a lot of kind of legal principles being tested. So I don't think it's going to be necessarily something that's really clear cut, like either a yes or no, or you win, you lose. I, I think it'll be, um, oh, that's my opinion, that's my bush lawyering. I, I think it might be um, that we're going to have to sit down and negotiate what, um, you know, the orders will look like moving on beyond Wednesday. But, you know, hopefully um, the judge does have something clear to say so we can all um, move forward. If a vote about your future and, and Danielle Cucinotta's future could could be put, is that something that could happen at your AGM next year? Um, again, I think it might be that we it'll miss the timeline for the AGM. Um, but, uh, you know, I've been told a judge can can make any orders that a judge um, pleases. So it might be at the AGM, it might not. And I guess that's what's going to be nice to actually get a bit of certainty around what the next steps are. In any case, um, the board of the VFF will be taking that, um, you know, constitutional change to the AGM, um, irrespective of whether or not uh, that same AGM has a vote uh, um, of either no confidence or, you know, for removal of myself and Danielle. Um, the board's very uh, dedicated to continuing to move forward in any event. And are you sticking to your guns? And, and if there is a vote, will you be essentially contesting that? Uh, it, again, it, like I know it's, a, it's all very boring because it's all very technical. Um, if it's a vote of no confidence, that's one thing. If it's a vote of removal, um, you know, the steps that flow on from that, again, we're going to have to wait and see what the judge says um, in order to navigate the next steps. Um, sticking to my guns in regards to um, what we've brought forward or the changes that have been made at the VFF, I know that from the outside it's it's looked um, pretty messy over the last few months, but I, the bit that I'll stick to my guns to is that we absolutely need change in this organisation. Um, we've got to be relevant for this day and age. We, we can't do business the way that we were doing it 20 or 30 years ago. The world changed. Farmers still absolutely need a voice um, to the community and particularly to our policymakers and the parliamentarians in either the federal or um, state setting. Um, and we've got to make sure that we're using farmers' resources and that voice and influence um, to the best of our capacity. On some of those changes, quite dr- dramatic in some cases, one of those, a change to the membership structure. Uh, now you've introduced a, a tier structure going from bronze to platinum, a price range of, I think, around $400 to around $1,500 rather than different commodity group members having different membership fees. Uh, what, why that change and what's been the response to it? We've actually seen quite a quick adoption of, of those um, invoices that have kind of been sent out. So it's being staged or, you know, like the process will last for the whole of um, this next financial year. The VFF financial year runs from the 1st of October to the 30th of September. So um, it's being staged. Those that have been, um, you know, like first up to, to convert their memberships, um, you know, where they've got renewal or uh, our UDV members, um, there's been pretty good uptake. And we're seeing that what the board predicted in regards to what tiers people would 
select is is kind of um, you know in line with what's happening. So that's promising. But again, any transition um, has teething problems and you know requires that consolidation over time. But we're really confident that this is the membership model that needed to be put in place to simplify it and then be able to actually go out and do a membership drive for you know those some seventy percent of farmers who are not a member of ours and haven't been a member of ours. Um, they're probably looking on the outside right now saying, what is all of this, um, you know, conundrum that's constantly going on? Um, but I hope that people will see that, you know, we've dislodged some of the things that people didn't like about the VFF in the past and, and that it's all about moving forward and being modern and dynamic so that we can keep up with the barrage of policy decisions that are being made by the government and make good representation for farmers who essentially are paying for all of the advocacy that happens and deserve to have good advocacy happen. Moving on to dairy matters, obviously earlier this year, uh, a large group of dairy farmers split away from UDV and formed their own group, Dairy Farmers Victoria. Uh, That's one thing, but the other matter is that the VFF still has an outstanding membership, I think, of around $350,000 to Australian dairy farmers, the the federal group. Uh, Why Mm -hmm. hasn't it paid that membership? Uh, so, you know, it was withholding until we um, had a meaningful conversation around the sustainability of the membership fee um, at the ADF and um, really pleasingly um, when Ben Bennett was, I think he was elected or, um, you know, he was announced president at about 2pm and he came downstairs because, of course, ADF are in the VFF building, came downstairs to level three and had a meeting with us at three o'clock and I'm really hopeful that we're going to be able to navigate um, a way forward here. You know, we said the whole time that the VFF wanted to remain a member, but we have to be sustainable and we can't keep our members captive. They have a choice as to whether or not they want to be members and whether or not they want to pay our membership fees. Um, we can't be captive elsewhere because we're all kind of linked together and I don't just mean dairy, I mean a lot of the other um, national bodies as well. We've got to make sure that we're all accountable to the members because Again, it's the, it's the farmers that are paying for all of these organisations to exist and farmers deserve to have the leaders in these organisations looking at things and making sure that we're using those resources um, to the benefit of farmers all of the time. And um, I will say that the frustrating part for me has been, you know, we, all we asked for was a conversation initially um, and it's taken, you know, a, a new president to be elected um, to actually have, you know, the first of a conversation around sustainability into the future. So I'm hopeful that um, we'll be able to work through that with ADF. So as you said there, Ben Bennett, uh, South West Victorian dairy farmer, just a couple of days ago uh, became president of ADF. So you, you feel with that change that it, it's going to be a case of, of back to the ADF table for the VFF? Oh, I think that, I mean, we're already back around a mutual table having a conversation as soon as he was elected. So um, I think the thing that um, Ben is a very robust character, probably not dissimilar to myself, um, and we, you know, had a good shout at each other, a good laugh with each other and and spoke about common goals and interests um, moving forward for the dairy industry and its advocacy. Um, And like I said, we will let that that conversation play out. But um, hopefully now that we're sitting around the table, obviously it makes it a lot easier to try and get to that outcome than when there's, you know, that stonewalling that we've seen, um, you know, up until, you know, just now. Moving on to some other big issues affecting agriculture at the moment. Only this morning we've had the Australian energy market operator coming out saying Australia needs to double the rollout of new transmission lines by the end of the decade. I'm already with it. Without that doubling, we've got those extremely controversial VNI West Western Renewables Links project that farmers are, are really 
uniting and rallying against. So, so what would even more projects mean mean for agriculture in Victoria? We know as farmers that we need energy. Everybody knows that there's this rollout that needs to occur and, um, you know, people have different opinions about, you know, the, the, the types of renewable energy that are used. What we say at the VFF is that you have to plan for it. You cannot, because of a failure of politics and a failure of policy, now come along, hit the panic button and say, we absolutely need to roll out all of this stuff, otherwise the lights are going to turn off and too bad for the farmers. We can't look back on this in 15 or 20 years and say, we just bulldoze across farmland that was incredibly valuable. It's had, you know, an impact on food prices and on food security and on regional communities. We can't be looking back in 15 years and saying, oopsie, um, this political situation created that outcome. Um, So, again, good planning needs to happen. Farmers need to have their rights maintained, plan it right, acknowledge the people that have to host these things. It is not for farmers to be hosting public infrastructure and not be getting paid for it. That, that's just unacceptable and we'll continue to fight that fight, um, I think, both with the state and the federal government for the next few years to come. Regarding the state government, we've just had this week, the Victorian Essential Services Commission has put out its land access code of practice, uh, particularly in relation to electricity <coughs> transmission. Uh, is that something that farmers should be relying on to offer them some sort of protection if they don't want transmission lines on their properties? Um, our, our concern is that that code does not, um, you know, give anything to farmers to rely upon. Um, in fact, the way that, uh, you know, the code will operate is that if there's an existing easement, too bad for you, you can't rely on the code. And potentially if there is, as soon as an easement is put in place um, in future projects, the code is also no longer relevant. So it looks like it's actually only for the construction phase. And we know that people who are hosting transmission lines are hosting them for decades and decades. So we would say that's inadequate. We've shared that sentiment. Um, with the government and with the commission um, and we'll continue to fight the good fight. We've we've actually um, been compiling our own code that we would like to see, um, you know, uh, companies, energy companies actually signing up to in regards to, you know, from the very first instance when you're conceptualising a a new transmission line, how you engage with the community because to turn up, you know, at 11 minutes to midnight and say, sorry, we're going to bulldoze and just too bad for you, again, is not good enough. So um, farmers need to be treated with respect. And I have had so many farmers saying we would be assisting the government greatly if our needs were actually being acknowledged. Uh, acknowledged. Uh, we, you know, they don't want to be in long drawn out processes fighting the government either. That's, that's a bad outcome for everybody, including the entire Victorian and Australian population. So um, we've met with the energy minister just recently. Um, I'm hopeful that she was of the understanding that the compensation that they're even talking about is completely inadequate. Um, and we'll continue those conversations in the new year. Onto live export, obviously, something that farmers are, again, really uniting and pushing back against. And uh, recently the VFF joined a whole series of farm groups in writing to Ag Minister Murray Watt, pleading, really, that for him to back down from his plans for a live live export of sheep ban. But, I mean, they haven't given any indications that they're going to back down, have they? No, I don't think so. And I, I, I hate when ideology runs politics, which is about 90% of the time. It's certainly what it looks like to me. This is just bad policy. It's bad policy because it's not based on 
science or economics or animal welfare. It is a populist opinion that existed for a moment in time prior to an election. And now we're just looking at a government, I think, that's being reticent on the back of we don't want to uh, back down from a commitment. My understanding is that within the Labor Party itself, there's quite a bit of contention about this and it's always about appeasing a particular faction. Uh, we need to make sure that the government's actually listening to the 75% of people in Australia who really trust farmers um, and the food supply chain. And we need to make sure that we're not doing these, you know, knee-jerk reactions that will actually, in my opinion, have a, a, a bigger, de a greater detriment on animal welfare um, than what the, the phase out would, would do. So again, we want to take good policy from government. And we also have got a federal government at the moment that I feel is not being very clear on where the vision is into the future. And that means that there's a real lack of certainty for, for lots of different parties in regards to where they're investing and, and how we're thinking about the food supply chain. And, and that is something that the uh, Labor government certainly needs to sort out. We're seeing that on a number of fronts. The other thing the federal government has announced uh, this week is that it will review the working holidaymaker visa program. And that comes at a time when it is cutting overall migration. Does that concern you that there, there could be limits introduced or a reduction uh, on the maximum amount of backpackers who can come here and work on farms? I think we've seen how important um, the backpacker workforce is to farmers. Um, it's probably not necessarily everybody's first choice in the in the best um, employee for lots of different reasons around stability and coming and going and whatever, but they certainly feel a need. But my concern is that we saw a migration strategy come out, but hang on, we'll, fix it. we'll, we'll talk about this other part of the strategy later. Um, the migration strategy that came out was this, you know, glossy document that spoke a lot about um, problems and aspirational ideas, but very light on the detail. So I think that um, we, we do see a risk there. Again, this overinflation of this um, ideological, um, sensational, you know, every worker that comes to Australia is exploited and it's just certainly not the case. Um, so we've got to make sure that we're getting those migration settings right. Another matter of criticism of the supermarket duopoly and the federal government recently announced a, a Senate inquiry into those allegations of price gouging by the big supermarkets. But uh, there have been as well other calls for an ACCC inquiry instead. But at the end of the day, the supermarkets are just going to charge what they please, aren't they? I mean, you know, as farmers, I think we always want to see that you're allowed to run a private enterprise and, and be in the business of making money. You know, that's what we're all that's what we're all doing. I, I think it's a bit far when we expect that the supermarkets are going to have, you know, see themselves as social enterprises or that the government's going to come out and say cute things like, oh, you better freeze the price of ham without any real understanding as to how that, you know, the implications of calling for things like that. The government at the moment, I think, is using the supermarkets and the inquiry as a bit of a smokescreen for the fact that they really haven't done much to address cost of living pressures that so many Australians are, um, are kind of, you know, coming under pressure from. Um, having said that, we do know that the supermarkets need to be using fair practices. We need to have fair and transparent practices, but a government hiding behind the supermarkets is just a late government. Um, there's also other implications. You can't just say, well, you know, they can't have 65 or 70 percent of the grocery share. Let's tell them that they've got to reduce that. That would have implications as well. So it's a it's a wicked problem that's got a lot of tentacles. But um, good to have these conversations starting to happen um, more openly and more freely. And I think that the supermarkets are engaging in a, in a way that I haven't seen them engage before. So, you know, that's another one to um, continue to work in partnership, I think, which makes people feel a bit sick when, you know, it's really easy to slam the supermarkets and I, on any other day generally would, but I don't want to see the government hiding behind the supermarkets for all of their failures. 
Emma Germano. We'll have to leave it there. Pleasure to talk to you, Angus. That was Victorian Farmers uh, Federation President Emma Germano, and I had a chat with her just a little bit earlier on. Uh, and at the start of that interview, you may have heard that Emma Germano saying that as uh, she's expecting Wednesday that the federal court judge will come back uh, with a decision which could perhaps, we're not quite sure what that decision will be, but could perhaps give those disaffected members an avenue to be holding a vote on Emma Germano's uh, future as leader of the VFF. On the text line, a couple of questions about transmission lines that we addressed in that interview. Lloyd at Tumbarumba says, put them underground or don't put them anywhere at all. This person, tongue-in-cheek, I think, says, if land is needed for solar systems or wind turbines, a lot of land is situated in the median strips of fairways, uh, freeways. Sorry, This happens to be close to population centres. And on the situation with uh, dairy lobby in Victoria, this person's an ex-member, they say, says, you have the new Dairy Farmers Victoria group with its back-to-the-future ideals, backing grassroots local branches. The UDV has finally given up on branches and gone to three regions. Dairy Farmers Victoria's insistence on branches is doomed to fail, and the UDV needs to go more radical and get direct farmer engagement, not through branches nor regions. And the most important issue, membership fees, they need to be the same for everyone, not tiered, where money buys you access and specific and special treatment. More transparency, please. And the ADF needs to take a good, hard look at itself. Once these people sort themselves out, farmers will start to pay attention again. Thanks for all of those texts, and if you did have any uh, thoughts on what Emma Germano had to say there or about the future of the VFF, get in touch on the text line 0467 842 The Victorian Country Hour on ABC Radio Victoria. Just gone 12.30, so let's head to news headlines now with Gillian Area. Good afternoon, Angus. In regional headlines, the RSPCA has seized 110 horses from two Kampaski properties in the state's north after the owner failed to properly care for them. In September, the owner of the horses was banned from owning or being in charge of any horse for three years due to failing to provide veterinary treatment and sufficient food. The man was given three months to get rid of the horses, but RSPCA inspectors instead found that he had bought more horses. Victorians made 1,000 reports of animal cruelty to horses in the 12 months to June this year. Victoria's Commissioner for Children and Young People says the state's child protection system is under significant and worsening pressure. This comes as new figures from the Department of Families, Fairness and Housing show that as of June 2023, more than 16% of children were without an active caseworker, the highest, poten- the highest percentage since the 2017-18 to 18 financial year. And Vodafone is shutting down its 3G network today, the first major telecommunications company to do so. Vodafone does not operate 3G in Victoria. However, regions bordering New South Wales, including Swan Hill, Mildura and Echuca, will lose access. Telstra is set to close its 3G network in June next year and Optus in September 2024. Older phones, baby monitors and medical devices may operate on 3G and should be replaced before they lose connection. And statewide figures from Ambulance Victoria show there have been 
580 assault and abuse incidents against paramedics last financial year, an increase of 14% to the previous year. It includes violent assaults, verbal abuse and attempted assaults, and data suggests the trend is worsening. In the Bowen South West region last financial year, there were 41 incidents, but between July and November this year, there have already been 33 incidents. The Grampians region had 21 incidents last financial year and 10 since July, while Loddon Mallee has had 47 last financial year and 26 already this financial year. And water restrictions are unlikely this summer across Gippsland. Gippsland Water says it's confident recent rain and dampness in catchments has ensured a steady supply in its reserves despite a dry start to 2023. And that's the latest in regional headlines. For more news online, head to abc.net.au forward slash news. Thanks, Gillian. Gillian Ariat there with news headlines. Let's go to the Bureau now. Senior forecaster Lincoln Trainer is on the line. Good afternoon, Lincoln. Good afternoon. How are you going, Angus? Well, it's a bit fresh today in Horsham, Western Vic, where I am, Lincoln. Quite a quite a change from earlier in the week. Yeah, absolutely. It looks like it's getting up to 23 for you today. Uh, partly cloudy, but yeah, it is. Uh, that cool change came through, and yeah, it's been interesting. Um, we've had a lot of storm activity, obviously, this week. I've been very, very busy. Today, finally, it's settled down uh, across the state, so there's a little bit of a little bit of cloud across the south, but it's mainly partly cloudy, uh, and it's mostly sunny in the north. Um, but yeah, we're in this kind of southwesterly flow, so it's brought temperatures down today. Um, if we look, I just look at the temperatures at the moment around the state. Um, so yeah, I mean, in the northwest, we're getting up to about 28. Across the south, it's around. Uh, 18 to 22. Uh, in the northeast, we're getting up to about nearly 30. So, yeah, it's, it's definitely a little bit milder than what we saw uh, as the high-pressure ridge builds over us at the moment, which will bring settled conditions, uh, mostly dry across the weekend. Uh, and then really the next uh, important day of note really is uh, well, we can say Sunday is going to be a mostly sunny day. Definitely the temperature is starting to slowly climb. Um, we'll get 31 in Mildura. Uh, for you in Horsham, let's have a look here. You'll see 27 on Sunday, and it will be a sunny day across the state on Sunday uh, as the winds tend more east-northeasterly. And then Monday, we get our next trough approaching, and that's going to bring the winds from the north again, uh, and that's going to be our warmest day next week. Uh, we'll get up to potentially 40 in Mildura. The fire dangers will go back up on uh, on Monday. We could see extreme fire danger in the Mallee and Wimmera uh, and potentially some dry lightning, which could create some strikes up there. So that's one thing to look out for, uh, and that's what we'll be focused on. Uh, so a little bit of thunderstorm risk in the far west as well, combined with that hot day uh, and the fire danger. Um, and then... Uh, it, temperatures will cool down again Tuesday as this trough crosses the state. We won't see a lot of shower activity. It'll be a little bit. Most we'll see in some parts will be up to 10 millimetres, but not a huge amount. That will kind of sweep through the state. Tuesday we'll get back into a southerly flow. That'll bring temperatures down by about 10 degrees again. And then we'll be in a, a bit of a, a southerly for the next three to four days after that, uh, relatively settled. So all eyes at the moment are on Monday, and then it'll be on for Christmas. But I can't yet give you that forecast. It's just outside of our window at the moment, Angus. 
Yeah, I I asked your uh, Joanna yesterday. Uh, where but we're still wow, well, what are we ten days out? So let's wait till we're seven days out, and then we will hit you with the questions, no doubt. Give you a stab. I could give you a. I could give you my best guess. Oh well, since you've offered, go for it. All right, this is my private. I disclaim the bureau from this, but I have sure. been looking at it. Uh, and at the moment, if we interpolate from Friday, which is going to be about 26 uh, for two days later, I am calling it at the moment about, depending where you go, uh, in the south, I reckon it'll be about 24, 25, partly cloudy a slight chance of a shower, and then into the north, it'll be quite a warm day, maybe low 30s. So that's what I'm forecasting at the moment, uh, but don't hold me to it. Hey, I think we just about take that right across the board. No worries at all. (laughs) So hopefully good news at the moment, but uh, fingers crossed anyway. And the outlook, Lincoln, really no no rain to speak of for, for the next week? Well, as we, we do have that feature coming across, so that will bring some rainfall across the state uh, late Monday across Tuesday. But as I said, it's going to be shower activity with this trough, kind of um, close to that trough as it sweeps through the state. So, uh, you know, the most at the moment I'm seeing from the models out of that is about 5 to 10 millimetres. We might see a thunderstorm uh, on Tuesday afternoon, evening, particularly in the northeast. That could give heavy falls, 15 to 20 mils in the northeast, so Albury Way, that kind of area. But beyond that, it's pretty dry uh, and mild, uh, and we're getting back into that kind of classic El Nino conditions, you know, dry, warm, uh, not much going on. Okay. We'll, uh, we'll talk later on. Thanks for that, Lincoln. No problems, Angus. Have a great day. You too. Lincoln Trainer there with... Uh, Talking what's coming up weather-wise. Now, I do understand that we have actually gone... We've switched over to the Melbourne broadcast, which is a mistake on our end. Uh, although I've just got a text as saying you're, uh, we're back. So for those who were listening on the digital stream or on the ABC Listen app, you may unfortunately have just lost all of the weather forecast there. But I can sort of summarise for you what Lincoln was saying. He's saying warming up for that one day on Monday for most areas, quite a warm day. Uh, and some rain coming across as well, particularly in the northeast, but then uh, cooling back down for the rest of the week. And he was kind enough as well, without me even prompting him <laughs> to speculate on what we might expect Christmas Day, even though that's still 10 days out. I think he said about around those sort of low to mid-20s in the south and uh, warm enough in the north, sort of into the 30s. So it sounded like a reasonable day all around, but... Apologies, that was an issue on our end, I think, right on 12.30. We may have had the wrong buttons selected and we've jumped over to the Melbourne broadcast rather than staying with the country hour. But in any case, you are back and thank you for letting us know too because sometimes these things can happen uh, and when us broadcasters may not actually realise. So uh, plenty of people texting saying we've just lost the country hour. So, hey, that's a good reminder. People are listening. Thank you. Uh, and we've got you back, and apologies that you did miss the forecast there. We'll try not to make that happen again. Uh, quite a few texts as well. Let's go to them now. Uh, back on our earlier interview with Emma Germano, president, well, besieged president, could we say, of the Victorian Farmers Federation, uh, with information too that we expect a decision from the federal court next week as to whether perhaps a vote on her leadership could be put. Uh 
So uh, I'm just my producer's just telling me it was also on analog, not just on the digital stream. So sounds like everyone may have missed the bureau's forecast. There, it might it may have been just me talking to Lincoln Trainer from the bureau. So apologies again. Uh, Macca says, "Geez, Emma Germano sounds like a politician." That's one perspective. Then Kimbo says, "Go Emma." Emma's exactly what rural Victoria and Australia needs to have a strong voice in the game of politics. Uh, going as well, JP says the UDV, UDV VFF new membership tiers, that's an absolute debacle, changing the goalposts and creating confusion, collecting levies that don't count toward new membership. Thanks for that text, JP. Uh so lots of texts coming through. Uh, and another person on Emma Germano saying, didn't we have a democratic election and vote Emma Germano in as president? Why do these members want another vote? Didn't they vote already? Uh, that is true that Emma Germano is relatively uh, early on, uh, very, relatively early in her current term. There was a vote uh, last year to reinstate her as president. Thanks for your text, though, 0467. 842-722 is how you can get in touch. On ABC Radio Victoria, this is the Victorian Country Hour. The Country Fire Authority is a shadow of its former self and isn't prepared nor resourced for the current fire season, according to a long-serving volunteer. Bill Chisholm, volunteer with the Nulla Vale Fire Brigade, has listed concerns about the organisation in a letter on behalf of 75 disaffected CFA members, including many current and former brigade captains. He told me he felt compelled to speak up. There's a number of us um, really concerned with the way the CFA has been going. Um, We've got uh, over 75 people, um, CFA members, um, most of them past captains. We've got eight current captains and um, a, a lot of... Um, volunteers that have uh, had executive positions or group officer level, you know, lieutenants and brigades, and they're really concerned with what's happening. So what are your concerns? What are the problems? The, there's a number of problems, but the biggest one is um, really um, the lack of volunteers, and, and that's a really critical issue. Um, currently, they state there's about 28,000 volunteers. Um, that's been decreasing over uh, years um, gradually, been decreasing, but uh, it's stepped up markedly over the last few years, and uh, uh, a certain amount of that's due to the onerous um, conditions, um, you know, to to um, uh, recruit volunteers. It's a ponderous and time-consuming recruitment pro- process at the moment. And um, the other thing I'd like to add, you know, they say there's 20, 28,000 volunteers, but if you took out um, the number of volunteers say over 60 or even go down to over 50, um, that would take out a significant number of those volunteers and we've got to look to the future. And I imagine as well, Bill, that that 28,000 figure, uh, a fair chunk of those may not be particularly active and maybe only a small portion are turning out to a majority of fires. That's correct, and um, you know I know in my local brigade here the the, the um, you know uh, number of really active ones is very limited, and um, you know 
probably you could say a lot of the bigger towns aren't struggling for numbers or the peri-urban areas, but once you get into the uh, small, smaller brigades, it's a real issue. And, um, you know, a response to fire is time critical, as we know. It's really time critical that, um, you know, you, you have brigades on site early and most of the smaller brigades provide that surge capacity in the, in the event of um, major incidents too. In some respects, um, it, it's not user-friendly to the volunteers with the, uh, you know, recruitment process currently. That's, I heard of one brigade, um, you know, they had eight prospective recruits. They ended up getting one out of it because because of the um, onerous conditions, um, you know, and, and how they had to go through this system. If we were really um, valued as volunteers, um, you know, expected to front really dangerous conditions in 30-plus-year-old fire trucks, um, you know, that wouldn't be happening. And, and that's the other critical, that links to um, how you respect volunteers. You don't see government cars driving around that are 30 years old, and uh, I don't think um, volunteers should be, you know, be, be expected to um, front ma major disasters with 30-year-old trucks. And, um, you know, now as long as it's roadworthy, they class it as fit for, for the fire ground. But that's just not on. So you feel that volunteers haven't felt respected nor valued? They could be treated a lot better than they are currently. Like things like injury compensation is far below. I, I know personally of a, a bloke severely injured at a fire. Um, uh, you know vertebrates and, and uh, neck issues, and um, you know the, the treatment he got. I heard it firsthand from him. Um, just appalling, and you know they can do a lot better. We're all paying roughly $580 million in the fire service levy. Um, currently, the government are putting back, I think it's uh, $12.8 million for new trucks um, that are actually issued from the CFA. And, and the, there's some uh, additional funding, a few million dollars apparently, to um, support brigade-owned trucks. But um, that's a pittance when, when you consider it's $580 million they're collecting out of the fire service levy. Turning out to a fire in a in a thirty year old truck, uh, how problematic is that, or dangerous? Well, uh, just for example, um, Nulla Vale on Black Saturday, they did the clutch in the truck. I was supposed to go out on the night crew, and we didn't go um, because they did the did the clutch in the truck. Um, Currently, that truck's still 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 um, the truck we use today. So um, I think that speaks for itself. And that was 14 years ago. Yeah, exactly. As you said, volunteer numbers fallen so substantially. I, I think something like 10,000 down in the past nine years. Uh, yeah. I mean, is that trend only going to continue? And if it does, where is it going to leave the organisation? It's a, yeah, exactly. Um, I think people can work out the sums for themselves. And if they keep funding replacement trucks at the current funding level, uh, you know, it was 30 or 32 years at the moment. Um, in, in another five or 10 years, the age will be 40 to 45 years old trucks. So um, it, the whole, whole process needs to. Uh, to have a fresh look at and um, see what can be done to address some of the issues. And how unfair is that, as we touched on earlier, to have people giving up their time and then having equipment that isn't 
fit for purpose. I'll I'll leave that to your listeners to work out for themselves. But um, yeah, I would definitely uh, um, are not in favour of the current way it's happening. That was long-serving CFA volunteer Bill Chisholm with his thoughts on the, the state of the CFA. On the text line, lots of people, thank you, texting in about our issue at 12.30 where we mistakenly switched over to the Melbourne broadcast, which regrettably meant that some of you did lose the weather forecast. Bad timing on that one. Uh, but it looks like perhaps the Horsham broadcast uh, frequency, 594, if you were listening on that, perhaps... You did stay with us because Jonathan at Caniva says, I heard the weather on 594 in the sprayer. Relieved the rain is gone, but looking for some warmer days to dry the crops and paddocks out to finish harvest. Question for the Bureau next time, perhaps. Closing comment on weather forecasts was back to El Nino drier conditions. So what happened for the past four weeks? It was a wild couple of systems. Fair question. Thanks for that, Jonathan. Uh, this person saying, totally agree regarding CFA, new volunteers, finding so many hoops to jump, th- jump, jump through, it's almost impossible. 0467842722, the text line. The federal government has launched its 99-page migration strategy this week. It outlines government plans to review the popular working holiday maker scheme, expand the Pacific Labor Mobility Scheme, and create a new visa for highly skilled workers. So what does all of that mean for farmers? Elsie Kennedy has the story. Australian agriculture is heavily reliant on migrant workers. So when the federal government released its migration strategy this week, farming groups were paying close attention. One of the biggest groups of migrant workers in Australian agriculture are backpackers. Many of them come into the country through a program called the Working Holidaymaker Scheme. And that's a scheme that the federal government says it would like to review next year. It says it's time to review that scheme because there have been reports of exploitation of workers and also because there have been reports that workers that come in under that scheme are less productive than workers that come in under other visa categories. National Farmers Federation CEO Tony Ma said he would be concerned if the review led to significant changes to the scheme. We've seen um, some commentary around the removal of um, you know, the, the requirements for a second year or third year visa um, and if that means that backpackers aren't going to go to the regions and, and, you know, work on farms or work in businesses out in the rural and regional communities, that would be a huge concern. One of the reasons the government says it wants to review the scheme is because of reports of exploitation of workers. How do you think that should be addressed? Yeah, awareness and, and you know, um, tools and measures that help people uh, report and, and and the government must follow up on on any reports or allegations of exploitation. I mean, it's we've got to make it uh, as easy as we possibly can for people to uh, report any concerns that they've got, uh, and there's, there's got to be follow-up. We don't want these people in our industry. Also raised in the strategy was the idea of creating a new stream for skilled migrants. Is that something that you think will be useful for the agriculture sector? Partly. We, we definitely want to attract you know, skilled people to our industry, what we're hearing or what we're understanding is that process might be subject to a tripartite agreement and, and, you know, subject to heavier regulation and also driven by the union. So, you know, there's some complexities there. The the proof of this will be in the implementation of it. One of the other things uh, raised in the strategy was the federal government would like to expand the footprint of the Pacific Labor Mobility Scheme, which has already grown Enormously, it's more than quadrupled since 2020. 
Is the National Farmers Federation supportive of, of increasing the footprint of that scheme? We're absolutely supportive of that. The, the issue or the concern that we have is, you know, the, the Pacific Labor Scheme is put up as, you know, the scheme that's going to solve all the industry's problems and it won't. It simply won't. It, it suits some businesses. So, um, sure, let's expand it, but let's not pretend that it's going to be the saviour to all the workforce issues in the agriculture sector. There are now 38,000 palm workers in Australia, up from 8,000 in February 2020, and they are increasingly in demand. A lot of people know palm workers for their work in the horticulture and meat sectors, but they are now increasingly being used in other industries, including aged care and cleaning. Sunraysia Residential Services CEO Marion Lehman says she's glad the Palm Scheme expanded to include her industry and she thinks it's a good option for employers looking for a reliable workforce. She says she tried a range of other options and just wasn't able to find workers anywhere else. We had advertised for staff with very little success. How common is it in the cleaning industry to get palm workers to do that kind of work? We're told it's the first time ever it's been done in this area. And why palm workers? Were there other options available to you? Well, um, I've got other people that we're bringing through on another visa and uh, that's been going on now for possibly, I would have to say, six to eight months and we still haven't been able to get the workers started. But with the palms, we were able to get this up and going within two months. Victorian Farmers Federation Horticulture President Nathan Free said he supported the strategy the government had put forward and in particular he was really happy to see a proposal by the government to prioritise visa applications put in by regional employers. I really appreciate the fact that they've, they're putting that forward for regional areas because no matter what industry, if you're in, even in the medical industries, in the health industries, we need people out here to su- support the communities. We need them out here to to get these roles done. That was VFF Horticulture President Nathan Free ending that story from Elsie Kennedy. A northeast berry grower is anticipating his best crop in nearly two decades. Tony Iria from Highgrove Farm in Stanley says several wet years and this month's cooler spring temperatures have been ideal for his berry crops. Well, here at High Grove in Stanley, we are experiencing the best crop we've ever had. I've been here 17 years, and by far, this is one of the best crops we're experiencing. It's all to do with the weather. I think the weather suited the berries uh, perfectly, and for that reason, uh, we can see the results now. Can you tell me a bit about what it takes to set up these canes and it's probably basics for you but just for Mm. someone who's not familiar well we buy the plants and from planting you get almost a full crop after three years or within three years we plant them and as they grow we use they're on trellis with wire to keep them growing up straight all berries are very similar to grow uh, but there is a lot of varieties that start a little bit early and a lot of varieties that they grow bigger in size and or sweeter with other varieties. I like the Chilcote and they, they are a lot bigger uh, and they, they taste fantastic. You can, see, uh, you can see the size when they're ready, how big they are. They're probably twice larger than the normal raspberry, easier to pick and they look fantastic after you pick them. In fact, we've planted a lot more of, of these type of berries. Oh, okay. This yeah, variety. the chill cotton, yes. The tay berry 
a, uh, is a cross between a uh, raspberry and a blackberry. So they use different crosses, if you like, mm. uh, to get a certain a different variety. Is that a fairly new one? The Tayberry. The Tayberry's been along. Uh, it's been around a little while, but uh, it's become more popular every year. And it's a beautiful berry when you eat it or make jam. It's like a f- you can almost taste or smell the fragrance out of them. So you've been here for 17 years and you are a pick-your-own-farm. So can you tell me a bit about why you made that decision, particularly with, you know, the fact that berries in particular um, take a lot of resources and planning to just produce and get on the shelves? Well, when we brought the farm 17 years ago, it was, it was also a pick-your-own-berries in a small scale. We expanded probably uh, more than double uh, what it was and it, it works for us, pick your own. If if we decide to send them to supermarkets, well, then it'll be very labour-intensive and I think we're better off pick your own and we're happy the way it's going with all the support we get from locals and other people. And how important is that for your customers, the fact that they can come here, not only pick <clears> their <throat> own, but get to know you and see how the berries look on the bushes, on the, the plants themselves? Yeah, what kind of feedback do you get from them? Oh, we get great feedback. They they appreciate it so much, especially when they come with kids. They're all they all go out with big smiley faces, and and they can't wait to come back. Do you think that the average, you know, Aussie shopper, maybe not the customers that come out to your farm here in Stanley, but the average Aussie shopper realizes how much work goes into producing things like berries and cherries that are quite perishable. Mm. I don't believe the average shopper does realise with uh, blueberries and raspberry, they all have to be picked by hand to be uh, supermarket standards and it's very labour intensive. You pick them one by one. With uh, blueberries and raspberry, they all have to be picked by hand to be uh, supermarket standards and it's very labour intensive. You pick them one by one and then blueberries, they have to be put through graders and punnets. With blueberries, there's a little bit of leeway. Uh, with raspberries, it's more or less the day before they have to pick them uh, and, and, and present them or send them to wholesalers or supermarkets. They haven't got a long, a long lifespan. They go soft and, uh, yeah, the quality's not there. And people should understand the, the, what the farmer puts in not only with labour, but he's got to grow them and he's got to look after them. It's all labour intensive and that's the reason why they're so expensive in supermarkets. Although supermarkets could pass a little bit extra to farmers if and when they choose. That was North East Berry Grower Tony Iria speaking with the ABC's Faith Tabaluyan. Just the one market today, Hamilton Sheep with Chris Agnew. Thanks, Angus. Hamilton agents penned 16,500 sheep today, representing a decrease in numbers of about 2,600 head. It was a very good quality lineup of both heavy and medium weights, with the majority being crossbred used, with fewer merino sheep on offer than the previous week. Not all the regular processors were active or present at the market that covered most weights and categories. It was softer by 20 to $25 for the heavier weights and 10 to $15 per head for the medium and 
lightweights with a very lightweight sheep cheaper again. Hoggett sold up to $101 a head, the general run of mutton to realise between $160 and $200 cents, to average between $160 and $190. Crossbred ewes sold to $62 with the well-covered merino ewes to $56 and the merino weathers making to $62 per head. Rams range from $3 to $12 per head. At Hamilton, this is Chris Agnew reporting for MLA. Thanks for that report, Chris. Well, that is just about it for the Country Hour. If you're listening on the app, you're off to news. Otherwise, you're heading to the cricket.